We are again in Psalm 13. I would like to read the scripture, pray, and then dive in. If you wouldn't mind standing as I read Psalm 13. And I would just ask that as I read it, see if you can't trace out in general fashion the contours of this prayer, because you will see switches are going off here and there, and this perspective is entirely changed by the end of this prayer. Psalm 13 begins, verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. You may grab a seat. Faith that can't speak to suffering is a fantasy that fades away under life's harsh realities, like, frankly, it does for so many people who make professions of faith and then suffering smacks them and they walk away. Biblical Christianity, however, biblical faith is real about the realities of life in a fallen world. Christians may package Christianity as a way to experience nothing but breakthroughs and happiness and prosperity and success. But the Bible doesn't play that game. Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world, you will have much tribulation, much pressure, much affliction. And I would add to that, because we are so insulated in this era to suffering, not all suffering, that's why we're doing this short series, but because we're insulated in this generation to much suffering that hit generations not, not too far ago, that when some suffering of significance does come our way, it sometimes serves to plunge people into spiritual free fall. I mentioned suffering of just a few generations ago. Did you know that in 1800, 46% of kids born did not make it to the age of five. That would mean about half of our children, gone. And did you know that, 20, that 25 out of every 1,000 women would die in childbirth? And if I'm reading that statistic right, that means if a woman had four children, she would have a one in 10 chance of not making it through childbirth. That's crazy, isn't it? That's some serious suffering. 
A few weeks ago, um, I met with a brother who um, shared the same tragedy that, that my family experienced, the loss of his oldest child. And we were talking about suffering in and, and this era and past eras, and he made the point that songs of the past, and I appreciate the songs we sang today, seem to have a depth that is lacking in some of our modern songs, all their glibness of just talking about experience, nothing but blessing and breakthrough and, and all the rest. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders, how's it go? God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his feet in the sea and rides upon the storm. Just read the rest of the, those lyrics. They were real about the storms that we experience. Now, I'm just trying to tell you by way of introduction, I believe the Christian faith has something to say about suffering. And specifically for the purpose of this two-week series, praying through suffering. We're starting a two-week series called Songs for Suffering. And today we're going to dive into Psalm 13, and we're going to talk about praying through suffering in general. And then next week, we'll dial in on praying through depression in particular as we look at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Now, Psalm 13 was written by David. David suffered a lot. Some of his suffering was self-inflicted. Others, others of his suffering was other-inflicted, and some of it was just by living in the fallen world, right? We know he suffered because of his sin, right? Psalm 32, Psalm 51, the penitential psalms he uses, uh, talks metaphorically about his bones wasting away because of unrepentant sin. We know that he suffered because God was using him, and if you will step out of the trench and be used by God, you will receive incoming fire. When God tells him that he's going to be king of Israel, Saul goes after him, and then 10 years later when he has the throne, one of his own sons tries to usurp him. All kinds of suffering. However, I just want to point out, this psalm doesn't tell us why he's suffering. Which, as one commentator concluded, is a good thing. Because then we might be tempted to minimize the application of this psalm to our suffering. We simply don't know. We do not know why he is suffering in the way he articulates in Psalm 13. Now, Colin Smith lays out Three kinds of suffering that we could apply the truth of this psalm to in our lives, okay? And there's not just three, but let me give you the three that he gives us. You can apply this psalm to the suffering of a loss of a loved one. All of us here are going to experience the loss of a loved one without exception, right? Now, for some, it'll be more uh, severe when, when those who should outlive you die, but all of us are going to receive heartbreaking losses, right? I still think of my mom all the time. I'm sure you think if your parents are deceased, you think of them. In other words, we are going to experience irreplaceable loss in this life. And this psalm has something to say about that. The second kind of suffering that you could apply this psalm to is something that hits everybody at different times in their life, and that is strain in their family. You ever have strain in your family? James Montgomery Boyce fills this out. Let me just read what he said. It may be 
that the happiness of the early days of marriage has been replaced by the stress of trying to work out personality conflicts or other difficulties in your marriage. You may be wondering if God has ceased to bless your marriage, or your problems may involve children. You remember in the early days it was comparatively easy to rear children, and you had many good times together. But now, one or more of your children is antagonistic and rebellious, and everyone else suffers under the inevitable strain. Now, to what Boyce said, I would add uh, the suffering of conflict with extended family or difficulty growing a family. There's all kinds of strains in the families that we can apply the psalm to, suffering because of that. And third of all, the suffering that happens when you are in a season of long-term exhaustion. You ever been there? Maybe just chronic job difficulties. Maybe a chronic physical illness, but some long season of trial and turmoil. You may not be in that situation right now, but you will be at some point in your life. And chances are there's somebody sitting around you right now who's in one of these situations of suffering. And so this morning again, Psalm 13, praying through suffering. There are four components to praying through suffering. This is not formulaic. This is not plug and play. But I think we can find four elements of what it would mean to pray through your suffering. The first point, at the risk of stating the obvious, it must be stated, is you need to pray. The obvious point here is Psalm 13 is what? Psalm 13 is a prayer. An important lesson just in recognizing that. That in suffering, you must, as hard as it might be, pray. In suffering, we are super vulnerable, are we not? You're either going to move closer to God, or you're going to rapidly drift away from God. It's nigh impossible just to tread water in suffering. The current will take you away if you're not turning to the Lord. So let me ask you, how have you responded in, say, your latest bout of significant suffering? Would you say, man, I would not want you to hear what I pray to the Lord, but I have been crying out to him. I have been turning to him. I have been pouring out my heart to to him, I have been seeking him, or would you say, pressing into the Lord in that kind of way, well, to be honest with you, that's a distant memory. Now, if that's you, if the latter is you, this psalm, this sermon, this time is an opportune time to, to turn from that and to turn back into his presence in prayer. That, however, does not mean that you ought to pray little Plastic, pretend, everything's all together. Prayers. You'll see that with point two. What's the first point? You need to pray. Second of all, as you pray, be real about how you feel. Be real about how you feel. Four times in Psalm 13, you just heard it read, the psalmist cries out what words? How long? Now, I'm using some sanctified imagination here, but I feel like 
he's gone from why, Lord, to forget even why, how long are you going to leave me in this state? How long are you going to leave me feeling like this? When are you going to do something, if not in the circumstances that I find myself in, at least in my heart? He's desperate, is he not? Four times, how long? When are you going to do something to make me feel better? And then, as I say, he's real about how he feels, and he feels three ways. First of all, verse 1, he feels, and maybe you have felt this way, abandoned by God. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? We're all good theologians here. We know that God never forgets anything. He never learns anything because he's omniscient. He knows everything all the time anyway. So when he says, forget me, what is he really, trying to, what is he really saying? You don't really care about me anymore, do you, Lord? He thinks that the suffering, whatever it is that he's going through, is evidence that God has forgotten him, that is, God has abandoned him. Do you see that? He advances upon that when he says, second line, verse 1, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, you maybe would know from Scripture that when the Scripture talks about God's face shining, you remember number 6, the, that, that blessing, make your face to shine upon me, when, when God's face, as it is, as it is uh, metaphorically showing, that is a way of communicating the Lord is blessing somebody. He's letting their face shine upon them. So he feels abandoned to the point that God no longer even wants to bless him. He, God is turning his face from him. He feels abandoned. Have you ever felt forsaken, abandoned by God? Ever felt like there's no way God wants to bless me anymore? You ever felt that way? He not only feels abandoned, he's being real about how he feels. He also feels despairing, discouraged. Can I even use the word depressed? Look what he says, first line, verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And this, this sentence, this expression, refers to obsessing on something so much in your head, we've all done this, playing it over and over and over and over and over that it plunges his heart into deeper discouragement. You ever done that? You ever been through something that you chew on and you chew on and you chew on and you obsess over and you obsess over and you play over and you play over that all it does is just sink you even more into depression. He's saying, how long are you going to let me do that, Lord? Do you see that? He not only feels abandoned by God, he is feeling deep despair. Do you see that? And then, third of all, not only feeling abandoned and discouraged, he feels defeated. Look what he says, last line, verse 2. How long shall my enemy exalt over me? Right? He's exalted over me. He's having victory over me. I am defeated. Again, we don't know what his immediate enemy is, but this we know, who the ultimate enemy is, Right? Him who prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, 
I've just laid out how he is real about how he feels. He feels abandoned. He feels discouraged on steroids. And he feels defeated. Those who would be in the camp of don't ever say anything negative because you might speak it into existence, you know what I'm talking about? Wouldn't like what he's doing. But what he's doing is quite right. He is being real about what he feels. And I would add to that, David expressing that is not out of step with a mature faith. If you read the Bible enough, and if you read Christian biography, you will find that the maturest saints would be real with God in those places when they felt far from him. Immaturity is, however, continuing to bottle it up. You ever been guilty of that? I sure have. You? Immaturity is continuing to fake it until you make it. Done that. Immaturity is trying to nub it away with busyness or bushnells or something else. You ever done that? Maturity is taking that stuff to God. He is, I say to you, being real about how he feels. So I just want to say, second of all, not only pray, but as you pray, no plastic pretend, make believe, I'm so in such a wonderful euphoric spiritual state. Be real about how you feel. And, and here's a news, news flash. The Lord's not going to say, oh, myself, I never knew that. I didn't know you felt that way. Like, you're not going to surprise him. Again, he's omniscient. Now, as I close this second point, here are three don'ts. I would write these down because these are super important. Number one, do not make any major decisions when you're in that place. How many of you have added needless heartbreak to suffering because you made big decisions in places when you were suffering in that kind of way? We have. I have. I'm sure you have. So just make a moratorium. Say, I am not going to make major decisions when I'm in one of those seasons. Sometimes you have to make decisions on something. I get that. But there are decisions that you can wait until you're in a healthier place to make. Amen? Second of all, don't find your identity in your suffering. I believe that victimization among all people is on the rise. Alistair Begg has a great quote. Let's acknowledge that there is a perverse sense of satisfaction in feeling sorry for ourselves. We can, we can do that, right? Oh, I've been through so much. When's the next thing coming? And maybe you have been through so much. But we can get so twisted in that place because we find our identity in that, that we don't have the eyes to see the good in our life and the blessing that is in our life all the time. So don't find your identity in your suffering. And if you're starting to do that, turn around. But third of all, and most importantly, don't stop there. Don't stop there. If we simply stop there, if we're like, well, I'm real about how I feel, and we, don't, and we, and we stay there, we, we stop there, we're no different than the Israelites, right? Who murmured and murmured and murmured, 
And pretty soon, they weren't really praying to God. They were doing verse 2. They were just constantly taking counsel in their own soul, right? Rehearsing their difficulties. And we revert to praying ourselves and just rehearsing our problems when we do that. So, one, pray. Two, be real about how you feel. But then third of all, what you move on to, whether you are having deep faith or little faith at time, you, you know, Jesus you remember that man who says, Lord, I believe, but help my... We've all been there. Even that kind of belief. Ask, third of all, God to move. Ask him to move. If not in the circumstances that are afflicting you, that are pressing on you, that are giving you suffering, at least in your heart. Ask him to move in your heart. Look what he says in verse 3. Consider me. Sometimes translated, look, look at me. Every parent here knows a time when they've been glued to uh, a conversation or ESPN or something like that, and their child's trying to get their attention, and finally your child just comes up to you and and grabs your face and, and moves it in their direction. You ever had that done to you? That's what he's saying he's doing with God. Lord, look at me, look at me. Being quite bold there, really. And then he says, not only consider or look at me, he says, answer me, answer me. He's saying, give me your face and give me your voice. He's asking God to move clearly. And then I I love this. Oh, Lord, Yahweh, the sovereign, eternal one, the great I am, who is also my God. In the midst of suffering, he holds on to this truth. This is my God, and I am his child move your face and move, Lord, your, your, your words, my direction. Look at me and answer me. Give me your face and your voice. It's, it's really beautiful. He's asking God to move. Then there's this. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Would you agree with me that there is not a great distance between depression and death? Would you agree with me? You know, God moves in mysterious ways. William Cowper, the night after he wrote that hymn, he tried to take his life a third time. He had friends around him who were a support network, and it's an incredible story. Even apart, even outside the step of suicide that some people take when things seem so dark and deep and, 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 and just there's no way out. And by the way, there, there's... there's it's crazy to list the pastors who've done that. Some big name pastors who are, I would think, in the word all the time. But even apart from that deliberate step of suicide, people can literally die of a broken heart. We're whole people, right? So you can't, you can't disconnect the emotional from the physical, can you? And we know that long-term mental and emotional turmoil does wreak havoc on a body and, and literally begin to shut people down. So what is he doing? He's praying for light, right? He's saying, Lord, turn on the light, my soul. Give me some light. Please move. If not in the circumstances, at least in my heart. And he adds verse four, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And again, whatever the enemies that were coming against him were, we all share the common enemy of the adversary himself. And this is what he wants to do when you're suffering. Know this, know this. In your suffering, 
He wants to use that suffering as a crowbar to pry you away from trusting the Lord, to pry you away from hoping in the Lord. His, his SOP, his standard operating procedure is to get people to get their eyes off the Lord and to say, well, maybe go, to doubt God, to be cynical about God. That's out of his playbook right there. So what's the third thing we need to do? We need to ask God to what? To move. So again, we pray. We're going to be real about how we feel. And then we're going to ask him to move. That's, that's, what, that's what he's showing us. And finally and fourth of all, this is huge. You must make a decision to turn from your feelings to, your, to the facts, okay? Ignoring feelings is really bad. It's really foolish, right? Would you agree with me? Ignoring your feelings. Again, then we go to bottling up and faking and, and medicating and all that. No, don't ignore your feelings. That is not a good thing. It's foolish. But you know what else is foolish? Keeping your feelings in, your, in the driver's seat. That's the cause of 99% of our problems. It's one thing to get up all in our feelings. It's another thing to stay up in all of our feelings. One commentator put it this way. Feelings are really important, and they are. God made us emotional beings. But they must be brought under the jurisdiction of God, his word, and his character. Now, I think it's important to note as we hit this fourth point, there is not a single indication in this psalm that anything's changed so far in his circumstance. Is there? Not one little brushstroke that says something has changed in his situation. Not one. And yet, having been real about how he feels in prayer to God, having asked God to move now again in prayer before God, he turns from his feelings to what? To facts. And he does so in three telescoping ways. Number one, he reaffirms his trust in God's steadfast love. Very plain, look at this. But, he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. I took two semesters of Hebrew, and the only thing I can remember is how to say that word chesed, and I'm not even saying it right. That's, that's my only takeaway. But I love that word, because it means God's steadfast covenantal love. In other words, God's love that doesn't let go. That's what a steadfast love is. Who here has read Sally, Jones, Sally Lloyd-Jones' uh, Jesus Storybook Bible? Most of us have, have read that. Read it through your kids probably multiple times. She has this constant refrain through all of the stories that reference this chesed, this covenantal love. This is what she says. God loves his children with a never-stopping, never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. That is God's steadfast love. And he says, I'm going to turn from the, what I'm feeling to, to this. I will trust. I, he, actually, it's past tense. He's going back to when he did trust in him. That's the subjective part, but the objective part is in your steadfast love. Now, do you do that? Do you, in your mind, 
Turn from how you're feeling to the objective reality of God's steadfast love. And there's a hill called Calvary where you can see that steadfast love on full display for you. Which takes us to the second thing he does. He rejoices in God's salvation. He rejoices. Look what he says. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's future tense. Now, again, I don't think that his heart was suddenly zapped. So suddenly he feels spiritually euphoric and immediately great. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is a conscious, I'm going to be really redundant here, deliberate, purposeful, intentional, willful, volitional decision, commitment. I will, I will rejoice in your salvation, in my salvation. And he's saying, I have no idea how this thing is going to pan out right here, right now, but I will. Rejoice in my salvation. Now, we can rejoice in our salvation in the midst of pain, even in the midst of our deepest pain, because of Jesus who went through the ultimate pain to save us, and by virtue of that, understands our pain more than anyone else. I want to reach back a couple decades because John Stott, I believe, really connects the dot on what I just said. So let me read this quote. You've probably heard it. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, and remember I said biblical Christianity squares up with pain. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He says, I have entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. Yes, there is still a question mark against human suffering and why and how long. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. That is the mark of the cross that symbolizes God's suffering for me. To our wounds, only a God with wounds can speak, and Jesus is that God with wounds. So if suffering has caused you to drift away from rejoicing in your salvation, I give you the words of the one who suffered for us. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you will find something more deep 
of his covenantal love as you turn to him and praise him for his salvation in your suffering. And that leads to the third thing that he does. Telescoping ways he turns from feelings to facts. This is what he does. Verse 6, he resolves that he will praise God. He resolves to praise God. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you see that? Again, again, again. I'm guessing that the switch didn't suddenly go off in his soul. I'm guessing he's still not feeling all that great. But he resolves to sing. Why? This is what it says. Because he knows the Lord has dealt, dealt bountifully with him. He knows that. This is cerebral. He knows it by the cross. He knows it by fact. Eternity, my friends, will show in spades how bountiful in his love and mercy God has been to us. It really will. It really will. But right now, in the light of the facts of his steadfast love and his salvation procured at the cost of the cross, can we not also resolve to praise God in every season? It's amazing how doing that can impact us emotionally. Do you know that even, even secular counselors, even psychologists, they talk and recognize and commend the value, do they not, of getting your eyes off yourself and onto something other than yourself, some other purpose. How much more for us as we take our eyes off ourselves and place them afresh on the living God who laid down his life for us. And even apart, frankly, from how it helps us, is he not worthy of it? Is he not worthy of it? Jesus Christ knows about pain more than anyone else. He just mentioned the physical pain, but what about the spiritual pain? He, he, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can feel that way. I don't think he felt blessing. And so he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. On all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, a sympathetic high priest. And so ultimately, this psalm points us to fixing our eyes on Jesus, does it not? The author and finisher of our faith. Father, I pray that this would be a message, this would be a text that would really lay hold of hearts. Hearts maybe are in a season of suffering right now or around those who are, who are or who undoubtedly will be one day. I pray, Father, that you would in your spirit-wrought, tailor-made way, minister to each and every heart specifically this morning, this truth of how we pray through suffering. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.